You think they're foes? They're in business together. Danny Bush knows the Carlisle Group since years before. Been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood for oil. We know there's a link. They say code war. We say code pink. It's blood. That was Code Pink by Emma's Revolution. I'm Jody Evans, co-founder of Code Pink. Welcome to our Code Pink radio show presented by WBAI in New York City and WPFW in Washington, DC. Last week, Biden announced he is increasing military spending, asking for an increase in the military budget. All this while Code Pink, the Poor People's Campaign and other grassroots groups are calling for a 50% cut in Pentagon spending. And we've even delivered a budget to the White House and Congress that says and lays out exactly where the cuts can happen. In calling for the increase, the Biden administration is blaming China for the increase. But it's the US that is becoming aggressive towards China, a country that spends one third on their military budget compared to the United States and has infinitely fewer nuclear warheads than the US. We need jobs and healthcare, not more money for bombs and bullets. In submitting the $753 billion Pentagon budget during a historic pandemic, while millions of working people across the country continue to struggle from the resulting economic toil and turmoil, this is just unconscionable. While everyday working people continue to struggle, the weapons industry has increased its value during the pandemic. This proposal is not what we expected. We expected at least a cut, which would just really take us back to um, the spending before Trump, Trump was president. If we truly want to build back better, we must reduce the Pentagon budget and invest in what really makes us safe. Medicare for all, a Green New Deal, housing for all, full employment, great public education, and much more. So, you know, this increase, it's larger than the levels during the Korean War, the Vietnam War, and the Reagan buildup in the 80s. So, you know, a 10% reduction in the military budget would amount to about $75 billion. Do you know what you could do with $75 billion? You could end homelessness in the United States, create over 1 million good jobs to address our crumbling infrastructure, and hire 900,000 teachers in our underfunded schools. So even a 10% rejection would have been a strong first step towards realigning our national budgets with the priorities of the people's needs first. But at the end of the day, the Pentagon budget's up to Congress, not the president. So it's really important that we all call our congressional representatives and ask them to defund the Pentagon and invest in human needs. You can do that today at codepink.org slash Congress Pentagon 2021. So much of our show today will question what is happening between the US and China and how dare they use China as an excuse for a more bloated military budget. But first I have a treat. Uh, Leonardo Flores, who directs the Code Pink Latin America team and their Good Neighbor campaign is gonna join us right now from Ecuador. Code Pink took a delegation to observe the elections this week 
just as we took a delegation to Venezuela and Nicaragua earlier. Leo, can you tell us what's happening in Ecuador this week? So there was a group of seven of us here doing electoral observation. Uh, we deployed to, I think, in total, maybe about 15 voter precincts. And really, we didn't see any major irregularities. I would say the vote was carried out uh, freely and fairly in terms of the voting itself and the vote count. Uh, and what we saw at the end of the day was a five-point victory for Guillermo Lasso, a right-wing neoliberal banker, over Andres Arauz, a progressive candidate. And we also saw roughly 1.7 million people decide to either vote blank or to spoil their ballot. Uh, so I think that was an important factor in this uh, election, given that Lasso only won by about 400,000 votes. Well, to me, it's very clear that there was an uneven playing field here in, in Ecuador. Um, I'll go into that in a bit. But also there were, you know, the CNE didn't play fair, uh, especially before the first round of the elections. This was the second round of the elections. And what I mean when I, what I, when I say that the CNE didn't play fair is that you know, you had Arauz's political party was actually banned from running. It was Alianza País. And they tried to form a new political party and they were refused that option. So eventually they found a small party that basically let them borrow uh, the, the party as a vehicle for Andres Arauz to be able to run. On top of that, you had a candidate banned, Rafael Correa, the former president. He was banned from running as vice president. And his image was banned from being used by the Arauz uh, campaign. So, but not only that, they didn't actually ban his image from being used in a negative way by other campaigns. So it was very kind of one-sided. Uh, on top of that, Andres Arauz was only able to register as a candidate in December. Uh, so you had other campaigns had a four or five months head start. And then you had the role of the media, which is very clearly, you know, corporate media dominates here in Ecuador, and they were very clearly in the Lasso camp. Uh, we had a dirty, dirty campaign on the part of Lasso. Uh, spreading fake news everywhere. I mean, initially, one of the big things uh, in terms of fake news was they claimed that Andres Arauz was going to de-dollarize the economy. Ecuador's economy has been dollarized for almost 20 years now, maybe a little over 20 years. Uh, and there's kind of widespread consensus that you know there are pros and cons to dollarization, but it's clear that dollarization has stabilized Ecuador's economy. And Andres Arauz knows this. He studies this, and he's an expert on this. And he, he never, ever suggested that he would de-dollarize. We also saw a campaign, electoral interference really from Colombia, uh, when they, you know, they disseminated this video of supposed guerrillas from the ELN, the National Liberation Army, a guerrilla group, that insurgent leftist group in, in, that's been operating in Colombia for decades now, uh, in which they claimed that the ELN had been financing the Arauz campaign. Uh, these, this, this video was debunked immediately by an ornithologist of all people who noted that you know the video couldn't have been recorded in Colombia because it was a bird that was only on kind of the Ecuador the southern uh, border of Ecuador so this was kind of false news and yet even yesterday in, in, on election day we had an important uh, magazine in Colombia reviving these uh, kind of absurd allegations and so that, I think that played an important factor uh, people really started, I think common voters didn't really know what to think about Arauz. They, they thought maybe he was corrupt in some way, uh, but there's no, absolutely no like, allegation of that. So I think a lot of that played into the fact that uh, to Arauz is defeat. I mean, I think a, a victory by, by Arauz would have really strengthened uh, the region's attempts at regional integration. Uh, during the so-called Pink Tide, which was this period in the early 2000s, you had when progressive government after progressive government took power in South America and Latin America as a whole and the, and the Caribbean as well. You had these new institutions that were created such as UNASUR, the Union of South American Nations, and CELAC, the com uh, Community of Latin American and Caribbean, St Caribbean States. 
These were meant to be sort of as a counterbalance to the OAS, the Organization of American States, which can really be understood as being a tool of the State Department to promote U.S. foreign policy throughout the region. Uh, UNASUR itself was actually a much broader project to aimed at regional integration, kind of like the EU, and we were taking the first steps towards that. Uh, the, the Moreno government, the, pre, the current president here in Ecuador, he withdrew Ecuador from both of these, uh, from both of these organizations, and that really dealt a big blow to uh, uh, the, re the region as a whole. We actually, I actually heard uh, a couple of days ago from a former ambassador who said that if UNASUR had, was as strong now as it had been five years ago, the pandemic would have hit South America in a, not nearly as hard as it has because they would have been able to cooperate uh, in terms of buying vaccines together, in terms of coordinating public policies uh, and, uh, and other things of that nature. Uh, internally here in Ecuador, uh, you know, I think we're very worried for the people of Ecuador because the Moreno government, so Lenin Moreno was the candidate for the left in 2017. He was seen as the successor of Rafael Correa. Correa was in power for 10 years. He brought economic and political stability to a country that before he came in power had 10 presidents in seven years, excuse me, seven presidents in 10 years. Uh, and now what we're seeing is that, you know, Moreno basically betrayed the movement and he endorsed the policies that had been put forward by Lasso when he was a candidate in 2017. So really we can say with confidence that Lasso, at least his political party, his vision, has been in power already in Ecuador for four years and it's been a total disaster, especially in terms of the pandemic. Ecuador is one of the worst performing countries in protecting people from the pandemic. And economically there's a huge crisis. The Moreno government signed this really terrible deal with the IMF that really brings us back to the days of the Washington consensus in the 90s. It's all about austerity and deregulation and, and re reducing the, the labor rights of workers. Uh, so I think there's going to be a lot of concern as to what's going to happen here in Ecuador. Uh, the people of Ecuador themselves, they, there was an uprising in October 2019 against the fuel uh, uh, elimination of a fuel subsidy that would have raised prices on everything, like everything from transportation to even food. And there was a massive uprising by social movements put down violently by the Moreno government. Uh, Lasso endorsed that, uh, that, that repression. Uh, and, and then, you know, I think that we're going to see more of the same over the next four years. Our next guest is Rob Kajiwara. Rob is an Okinawan native, a Luchuan. He founded the Peace for Okinawa Coalition and is fighting to stop the United States building a new base in Okinawa. We're very excited to have you in conversation with us today, Robert. And I want to start by asking you, you know, tell us more about you um, and not only who you are in your relationship to your country, but um, also uh, why you started a peace uh, collective. Hi, Jody. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, yes, I am Robert Kajiwara. I am native Luchuan, also known as Okinawan. Uh, I'm, I am mixed race. I'm also uh, native Hawaiian. And I do split time between uh, both Okinawa and Hawaii. Uh, I am founder and president of the Peace for Okinawa Coalition. We are a Luchuan group. Uh, founded and led by millennial Luchuans. We have offices in both Okinawa and Hawaii. Uh, for those who are not aware, Hawaii does have a large Luchuan or Okinawan population, at least 50,000. Uh, we have also been working very closely for years now with native Hawaiians and other Pacific Islanders and, and various nations and people groups from around the world who are in a similar position as Luchu in terms of 
advocating for demilitarization and peace and uh, trying to restore our de facto independence. Um, so yes, I am, uh, I am native Luchuan and we started this group in order to, uh, well, um, advocate for our independence and demilitarization, but also to uh, spread and promote Luchuan culture, history, language, and, and issues, um, especially to a worldwide audience, because you don't see that a lot from actual Luchuans. Uh, a, a lot of times um, when people write articles or books or, or whatnot about Okinawa, it's written or produced by Americans or Japanese, not by Okinawans. So we really want to get Okinawan voices heard uh, to a, an international audience. Wow, that's fascinating. I mean, painful, um, but that here you are a people and you're not, your story is not being told by yourself. Um, yeah, I don't think enough of us realize that, that, um, and your work for self-determination. So as you look out at this growing war, Cold War on China, um, maybe take us into what is the relationship of Okinawans with China over probably what centuries, I would think. Yeah, so Luchu is geographically located very close to China. We share an ocean border. Um, a lot of Americans have this misconception that Luchu or Okinawa is, is geographically very close to Japan. That's not really true. Um, Okinawa is actually very close to China and the Philippines. Uh, the largest city, Naha, is actually closer to Manila, Pyongyang, Seoul, and many major Chinese cities such as Shanghai uh, than it is to Tokyo. So historically, Luchu has always had a very close and friendly relationship with China, with Korea and Southeast Asia as well, but especially with China. Um, and this dates back uh, thousands of years to informal relations, um, even before written records. Uh, however, in 1372, Luchu and China did start a formal uh, uh, relationship, bilateral relationship um, this was, this is commonly known in English as a tributary relationship. And, but this term is very problematic because when, uh, Westerners hear that term tributary relationship, they immediately think that China oppressed Luchu, that, that China forced Luchuans to, to pay tribute and, and that China invaded and bullied Luchu. Even the Encyclopedia Britannica, if you look up uh, their, their writings about Okinawa or Luchu, it says that China invaded and subjugated Luchu around the 14th century, which is not true at all. The historical sources are very clear on this. There is no evidence whatsoever of China ever having invaded or harmed Luchu in any way. So this relationship was actually uh, consensual and mutually beneficial. It was a relationship between equals, although China was considered slightly more equal than Luchu simply because of its enormous size and, and wealth. Luchu is, is quite small and China is, is one of the largest nations on the planet. Uh, but 
um, China always treated Lu Xu very well. So the way it would work is Lu Xu would pay tribute to China. And in return, China would give many gifts to Lu Xu. Uh, and China always gave more to Lu Xu than what they received in order to demonstrate uh, their vast wealth and, and, and power and um, generosity. Um, so this was, uh, this was China's obligation as the, uh, the greater power. And so Lu Chuans were extremely happy with this arrangement. So they sought to pay tribute to China as often as possible. Uh, this was um, financially, this was a losing uh, arrangement for China because China had to give more than what they received. Uh, but the benefit for China lay in prestige. So um, the prestige they received by having Lu Chuans uh, pay tribute to them helped to stabilize China's internal affairs as well as foreign affairs. So it, it was a mutually beneficial arrangement. And um, there was, there's no historical evidence of China forcing or oppressing Lu Chuans in, in any way. So, um... That's fascinating, like how the, the history is written. Who did it benefit um, to write the history as, you know, incorrectly? And what are the relationships with like Japan or the United States or other, um, other powers? Yeah, so uh, prior to the uh, 17th century, Luchu had a positive and friendly relationship with Japan as well. However, in 1609, the Satsuma clan of Japan, which was Japan's largest and most warlike clan, uh, decided to invade Luchu. Uh, Luchuans fought valiantly, but they ultimately lost. Um, and uh, so Satsuma forced uh, Luchu to pay tribute to them. Uh, and um, so this was the start of Japanese oppression towards Lu Chuans. However, Lu Chu continued to maintain its independence uh, until 1879. At that time, after the Meiji Restoration, Japan began to industrialize and militarize in a Western sense, and they wanted to collect colonies similar to the Western powers. Uh, so they again invaded and forcefully annexed Lu Chu against the will of Lu Chuans. Of course, Japan did similar things to much of the rest of Asia and the Pacific. Uh, during the Battle of Okinawa in 1945, Japan purposely uh, built an inordinate amount of military presence on Okinawa Island, which is the central and, and largest and most populated island in Luchu. They did this with the expressed content, uh, ex sorry, expressed intent to sacrifice Okinawans in order to save Japan, the Japanese. And so during the three-month battle of Okinawa, um, roughly one-fourth to one-third of the Okinawan population was killed. Um, it is said that every Okinawan lost family members. I lost many family members. Um, uh, it really devastated the, uh, almost the entire island um, uh, and to this day, it's a very difficult uh, issue for Okinawans to think about and talk about. Uh, 
during that time. Well, can we can we just stop there for a second? Because um, you've described like the laying of a trap that um, obviously the trap laid, then the U.S. gets into it and really causes all this to happen by not understanding it's a trap laid and doesn't think about the people who live on the island um, as an independent people. At least that's what I'm hearing you say. Um, yes, however, during the 19th century, Lutu and the U.S. actually signed a treaty. So the U.S. was well aware of the history. They were, they, the U.S. recognized Lutu as a sovereign and independent country with that treaty. In fact, as a gift, Luchu gave um, a, a stone, limestone, to the U.S., um, which was included in the Washington Monument. This was a symbol of their friendship between Luchu and, and the U.S. This treaty was signed in 1854. So the idea that the U.S. was just not aware of Luchu uh, as an independent country, that's, it's, it's false. They, they were well aware. In 1945, uh, obviously, uh, the U.S. defeated Japan. They occupied Okinawa and all of the Luchu Islands. At that time, around that time, uh, all of Japan's other colonies began to decolonize and began to restore their independence, except for Luchu, because the U.S. military decided to keep Luchu for itself to use for bases. So. Um, uh, for, for, for decades, Luchuans were under direct U.S. military rule with no form of democracy or, or self-governments at all. And of course, Luchuans strongly uh, protested this, especially because uh, of all the problems that the U.S. military causes in Luchu. So in 1972, the U.S. gave Luchu to Japan uh, without a vote from Luchuans uh, which is illegal under international law, and it's a major human rights violation. And so since 1972, Luchu has been under joint U.S. and Japanese occupation. You're muted. You're muted. Sorry. Um, I, that makes me very sad. Um, so... Uh, what was the relationship that continued with China through all this? So there's the relationship with China, then Japan takes in. Is there any other relationship that continued with China in the time when it was occupied by Japan and then the US and now joint occupation? Yes. Um, however, you know, obviously, Luchu being under Japanese and US occupation uh, with no form of self-government, the, the formal bilateral relations between Luchu and China, obviously, uh, you know, have stopped for now anyway. Uh, but informal relations, yes, of course, have continued. Uh, China has always recognized the history of Luchu being an independent country until J Japan forcefully annexed it. Uh, China, the People's Republic of China, um, including the, the uh, Communist Party of China, has always recognized Luchuans' right to self-determination. They've always said that Luchuans deserve the right to self-determination, which Japan and the United States have never done. So actually, 
China has has actually uh, um, treated Lu Chu much better, even in the 20th and 21st centuries. So what is what is your concern right now about Okinawa and the growing Cold War in China? Yeah, so obviously this is a huge concern for us. We have no desire whatsoever to get mixed up in uh, this uh, Cold War or whatever you want to call it. Um, we've never agreed to be part of Japan or the United States. We've never agreed to host US or Japanese military forces. And um, Luchu, the majority of Luchuans want the US and Japanese military forces out. Okay, we, we have nothing to do with, with Japan or America's uh, aggress, aggressions or, or foreign affairs with, with any country. And especially not with China because of the history of peace and friendship between Luchu and China. So what, what, um, what steps can be taken to, you know, A, raise this in a higher decibel, you know, that, um, I mean, you've got a lot of people signed on to your petition. So you're obviously a really good organizer and there's a lot of passion. Um, how, how can we help? Because um, having Okinawa have self-determination and moving the military out of their benefits a people, but it also is one less, uh, you know, place where the side wars can happen, which are the worst, um, as, as you've described, where a quarter of a country can be killed and it's just not even on the, in the history books. Yeah, so, um, well, Code Pink has already been a strong supporter of us. Um, I, we're very thankful for Code Pink's uh, support. Um, for example, in January 2019, we had a press conference and a rally in front of the White House in Washington, D.C. Uh, Code Pink uh, was a big supporter uh, for us in that. Uh, so we look forward to continue working with Code Pink in our, in our uh, mutual endeavors. Um, so we are working at the United Nations and with uh, the international community at large to help restore Luchu's de facto independence. Um, of course, uh, it's, it's not easy. It's, it is uh, complicated. Uh, so we appreciate uh, Code Pink and, and other Americans who, who have shown uh, support for us uh, on our website, peaceforokinawa.org. Uh, there are various ways uh, people can can get involved. Um, so I, I encourage people to check that out. And so, um, you know, in in the relationship between Okinawans and China, do you feel like there's still most Okinawans feel that there's a harmonious relationship with China and they would be concerned about uh, this Cold War? Absolutely, absolutely. And this was actually proven the United States government itself <laughs> is aware of this. Uh, we, we know this via WikiLeaks. The US government um, had some internal documents in which they, they admit that the majority of Okinawans uh, do not see China as a threat and have a positive or at least a neutral view of China. Um, even, even um, for example, Naha City maintains a very close sister city relationship with Fuzhou city in, in China, which historically Fuzhou was the uh, most important uh, city 
in China in terms of uh, China Chinese Luchu relations. So that relationship continues even to this day. Fuzhou has um, helped build or, or sponsor various uh, projects in, in Luchu. They've built a, a beautiful uh, Chinese garden in downtown Naha. They've built um, other, uh, the, the famous uh, dragon stone pillars uh, in, in, in Naha. And so um, the majority of Luchuans simply do not see China as a threat, they have a positive or neutral view of China and certainly have no desire to start any type of conflict uh, towards China. Thank you. And so I also, if you could just bring us a little into Okinawa, like what have been the costs of to the island and the people? You've described how many have lost their lives, but health costs or like to be that inundated with so much militarism, what, what, how has the island experienced that? Uh, we have been hurt so greatly by U.S. and Japanese militarism in, in Luchu. Uh, we, it cannot be overstated the damage they've done in terms of economic uh, suppression, in terms of environmental uh, health, uh, crime. Uh, it, there are just so many problems that come with this ongoing military presence. Um, uh, for instance, uh, the military takes up 15% of, of Okinawa's land and around 30% of Okinawa's arable land, yet it contributes just 5% to the Okinawan economy, creating a huge deficit. Um, so this is economic suppression. Again, it's a major human rights violation. Uh, Japan and the U.S. are suppressing the Okinawan economy to try to prevent us from, from regaining our, you know, um, our, our self-determination and our independence. Thank you so much for making us smarter about Okinawa and Luchu and people and explaining the cost of US military and militarism to your island and people. Uh, listeners, you can support Rob and the people of Okinawa by, by telling President Biden, General Austin, and Secretary Deb Helen to stop the building of this base in Okinawa. Go to codepink.org slash Okinawa and please act. They need you. So you are listening to Code Pink Radio coming to you through Pacifica Radio's WPFW in Washington, DC and WBAI in New York City. We will be back after this break to hear from Madison Tang, Code Pink's new China is not our enemy campaign coordinator. Something happening here What it is ain't exactly clear There's a man with a gun over there Telling me I got to beware I think it's time we stop Children, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down being drawn Nobody's right if everybody's wrong Young people speak in their minds 
are getting so much resistance from behind. Time we stop. Hey, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down. That was Buffalo Springfield's 1966 song, For What It's Worth, with a message that urges the public to be aware of the dangers of U.S. militarization and warmongering. That's what we're talking about today. So welcome back. I'm Jody Evans, co-founder of Code Pink. Thank you for listening to Code Pink Radio presented by WBAI in New York City and WPFW in Washington, DC. So I'm here with our second, our third guest of today, um, Madison Tang, who is the new campaign coordinator for our China is not our enemy campaign. Madison, welcome to Code Pink Radio. Um, soon you'll be hosting this instead of me. Um, but why don't we start with what is your background in organizing and activism? And why did you want to join the China is not our enemy team at Code Pink? Thank you, Jody. I'm happy to be here on Code Pink Radio and excited to um, be helping host it in the future. Um, and yeah, my background um, as a organizer and as a um, passionate citizen of the world, um, I really got involved during the past couple years. Um, I was more radicalized in college um, through education, um, but the past couple years I've been working with a few orgs. Um, one of them is the Feminist Front, um, it's an intersectional woman and queer people of color led organization based in Los Angeles. Um, so uh, we've been working right now on the Equal Rights Amendment, um, getting that passed to provide um, better uh, workplace, uh, housing, healthcare, et cetera, rights across the gender spectrum. And we're trying to make it more inclusive of intergenerational and um, queer folks um, in addition to just women. Um, and we were also active last year in promoting a lot of phone banking events to help with battleground states in Atlanta or in um, South Carolina and Alabama um, and Tennessee. So we were really happy to contribute in that way. I've also been working a little bit with No Olympics LA, which is an organization in LA um, trying to make the public aware of the extreme militarization, securitization, and gentrification surrounding um, a city being a host city for the Olympics, especially right now in a city like LA where there's such a heartbreaking unhoused situation and crisis that could really easily be solved by Mayor Garcetti. He has the access to federal FEMA funds. Um, he just hasn't really been accountable to providing those to people and getting unhoused folks into hotels. And um, where I am right now temporarily is Idaho, Northern Idaho, and I'm from Southern California, LA. So I still work remotely with that community, but where I am right now, I'm also working with the local Democratic Socialists of America. Um, we started a All Workers Alliance um, working group and um, subcommittee to help um, people come people to report um, working violations during the pandemic, um, to give them access to resources about worker protections and things like that. So these are a few things that I've been working on and where I've kind of 
developed my appreciation for organizing and working in community with my fellow uh, members. And how does that lead you to be part of our team at Code Pink? Uh, China's not our enemy. Yeah, um, I joined, I've been a huge follower of Code Pink's work um, in the anti-war and peace movement for a long time. Um, um, Code Pink always seems to be um, on the right side of opposing any kind of provocations or justifications for war. Um, I joined the Youth Peace Collective in Code Pink. And from there I saw um, that there was a listing for China is not our enemy. And it's been the biggest campaign that I've been paying attention to that Code Pink's been working on in the past year. Um, to me, it's an important issue um, to stop the anti-China narrative and rhetoric coming out of the US. Um, personally, because I am biracial, I'm Chinese American. Um, my grandfather was an immigrant and his family came to the United States during the Chinese Exclusion Act. So they actually came illegally through a rider bill um, that they got passed through Congress. Um, and they came as a result of Japanese occupation um, during the war. So it does affect me personally in terms of my experience in the US, but also in terms of my heritage and my understanding of the disinformation surrounding China and the de demonization surrounding China and its culture and its government. Um, and as far as organizing, I really have learned in the past uh, decade or so how important anti-imperialism is to my politics and to the sustainability of our world and our humanity, um, our race. Um, so it was really important to me to work with um, an organization with an internationalist perspective and approach um, and the way Code Pink was framing the China is not our enemy campaign um, was exactly what I think we need to see more of in the world. Um, so I'm just really happy to be working on this campaign with you, Jody. Thank you so much, Madison. We're really excited to have you on the team. So um, why is there this US and NATO aggression towards China at this time? Yeah, that's a huge question that I think um, a lot of Americans aren't completely aware of every um, aspect of. Um, so one of the biggest reasons that has been mentioned, um, and it's not always directly mentioned, but there are times when it's, it is explicitly mentioned by the US White House, um, is that China is expected to surpass the US as a global economic and generally world power, political power in the next five or so years. Um, so there are accusations of human rights violations that are being used to drive this military aggression against China right now. Um, but on the other hand, Biden has come out and said um, that he vows um, to prevent China from passing the US as the next most powerful country in the world. He vows that China will not surpass the US as a global leader on his watch. So there are moments where we see um, some of the truer motivations behind this drive for war with China. Um, and it comes down to this, this zero sum mentality that another nation um, succeeding and developing uh, is a threat to the US and a threat to US global supremacy. Um, and another main reason um, related to that is that China is constructing the um, Belt Road Initiative. Um, and they're doing that to expand capacity for trade. It's basically a huge land um, 
and Marine Trade Route. Um, it's named after the new, uh, the new Silk Road, um, the, or it's called the New Silk Road, named after the original Silk Road, which, um, excuse me, uh, arose during the Western expansion of the Han Dynasty. And it had forged trade networks throughout Central Asia, um, creating cross-cultural connections. Um, so right now, a lot of China's trade, um, export and import of goods is controlled by the US and the US control of the Pacific, um, the Western Pacific, the South China Sea, um, such that if the US Navy wants to blockade um, channels, it can cut off China's economy. So China is hoping to expand trade through Central Asia, through Europe, um, which is its biggest trade partner right now. And in doing so, it is hoping to develop um, infrastructure in all of the countries that it's making agreements with. Um, and the first area of China that um, the BRI would go through is Xinjiang. So you can see that Xinjiang is a geopolitically um, crucial region um, for NATO, the US and China. Um, and really this Belt Road Initiative would be um, kind of challenging US sanction power um, and the way that the US has put a chokehold on so many countries like Iran, Venezuela, um, et cetera, because China would be offering um, an alternative to the monopoly on trade that the US has. Yeah, that sounds great. You know, we think about um, 1492, the European white uh, got on their boats and went out and colonized and, and exploited the world. Um, and, you know, the story of that, uh, people can really watch this week was released a film by um, HBO Max directed by Raoul Peck, Exterminate All the Brutes. I encourage you to see it. Don't watch it alone. You need somebody to hold your hand through it. But it really does describe what happened. Um, and at the same time as white Europe is conquering, exploiting, and colonizing the world, China was building trade routes for connectivity. And, and really right, right here we see with what you're describing is this pivot moment again, where um, you know instead of encouraging trade, instead of encouraging cooperation, which is so needed on pandemics, on the climate, on the level of inequality, that is globally, what we see is a choice again. Um, do we come together, cooperate, trade, understand each other, um, or does this, you know, aggression continue? Uh, so what's the plan? How do we stop this drive to war and aggression towards China? Um, you know, how do we get around the manufactured narrative that attempts to make China our enemy? Yeah, that's exactly what I think our aim at China is not our enemy is, is to challenge, undermine, and disrupt that anti-China narrative that's um, primarily led by the U.S. White House um, and Western mainstream media. Because um, it, it has to be stated that a lot of Global South nations have very strong alliances with China and have built respectful relationships over time. Um, and China's national policy does... Uh, include multilateral cooperation with other nations, um, not a unipolar world order. Um, but at Code Pink, I think one of our main goals is to spread more popular education around 
China as a country, um, as well as US-China relations, the history of that and how um, this pivot or move to the Pacific following the US's um, interventionism in the Middle East um, and how that's that, that's been accumulating and building up for a long time in defense planning documents um, in the US because um, the Eurasian landmass controls so much of the world's resources and people and US defense planners understood that it would be crucial um, to gain control over that region, especially the Pacific, the Indo-Pacific um, maritime trade area. Um, so we have been doing webinars. Um, we have been um, also coalition building a lot um, with all those that are affected by US-led imperialism and the new Cold War in the Pacific, um, which is a lot of people, a lot of land, a lot of the environment. There's a lot of the world that's gonna be affected. Um, not to mention if we um, engage in a hot war and include nuclear weapons, um, it would include the whole world um, and all life on this planet that's at stake here. It's really an existential threat we're talking about. Um, so we're educating about that and we're building coalitions with um, indigenous communities in the Pacific who have been resisting um, militarization by the US and NATO allies for a long time and have really paved the way there and um, we're as much as possible following their lead and centering their experiences there um, because they're dealing with daily militarization, including sexual crimes of US servicemen, um, environmental pollution, economic devastation, etc. You also doing coalition building with Asian American and Asian organizations, um, peace activists, um, ex-service people and feminist orgs to kind of emphasize a feminist foreign policy future that we envision. Um, yeah, so that's kind of the strategy right now. Um, and more and more people are becoming aware of this issue um, and I think they are thirsty to understand more and they understand that there is more to it than just what's being stated, which is that China is our enemy and China's the only aggressor here um, and that our way of life in the US cannot continue alongside China's. Yeah, well, we've, we've heard this before. I mean, for, for me, as um, you know, Kuping started around the Iraq war and I listened to this and it is exactly like the drive to the Iraq war. Because on our side, we're looking at what they're saying. It doesn't make sense. It's not true. They're trumped up facts. They come from one person. And here we are again that, you know, they're trying to throw things out to keep, you know, especially I would say the progressives and the left, um, you know, in disinformation um, and confused about uh, China. And, you know, one of the places where we really see the aggression towards China having devastating results is to Asians in America. I mean, here we are uh, pushing a war towards China and already people have lost their lives because of it in the United States. And we saw that in Atlanta, but there's been more than 3000 attacks on Asians that it, a, a sharp spike in what was already a problematic uh, xenophobia and racism. Um, can you talk about um, how this aggression is affected um, towards China is affecting Asians? Yeah, that's definitely true that um, we have been seeing this rise in anti-Asian violence um, even before the 
um, horrific shootings of Asian women in Atlanta. Um, and also across the globe, we're seeing a lot of the media coverage in the US um, and probably the biggest response um, in decades to um, anti-Asian violence from the public, but it's happening across the globe as well. And um, the thing about this kind of anti-Asian violence is um, it is really rooted in Sinophobia and it's really rooted in uh, red, or red, red baiting tactics, including um, anti-communism sentiments. Um, so we see that um, many Asians and Asian Americans are being targeted, including East Asians, Southeast Asians, um, some Pacific Islanders even, although it's not always prioritized and mentioned in the news. Um, and this is an inability of um, Westerners, especially Americans, to differentiate between um, ethnic minorities and ethnicities in Asia. Um, but it, a lot of their justification, these kind of perpetrators of anti-Asian racism and violence, is uh, based on resentment and allegations against the Chinese government, against um, the CPC. Um, so we see that there's this direct connection between a, a um, demonization of a country and the racial violence against a people and that the perpetrators of this violence aren't really able to make that distinction um, because the propaganda is so high and because the Sinophobic sentiments in the United States are really not new, they are being reinvigorated. Um, and so there's such a reservoir of that bias already among the American people. Um, and I just wanna stress that like, we have been witnessing that Sinophobic sentiment, that xenophobia um, for at least a century or more. Um, even before the Chinese Exclusion Act, um, we had the Page Act in 1875, the first restrictive federal immigration law in the US which specifically prohibited the entry of Chinese women um, who were labeled by the state as um, all, to, all part of the sex trade, all sex workers. And while that was a aspect of immigration just because of the, the time period and the difficulty of uh, travel and um, getting to the US, that was obviously not all the immigrants um, who were Chinese women. And along with that targeting and like kind of like horophobia, demonization of a certain type of work um, was the idea that they were all diseased. Um, and then we have Angel Island, um, which at many points was used to contain specifically disease from the East, um, which is related to this yellow peril um, phenomenon. So we see the idea of um, uh, stigmatizing Asian people as diseased, um, which is not rooted in reality, considering how how many historic reports uh, talk about the hygienic practices of Chinese migrant workers in San Francisco in the 1800s. Um, but that was all far before um, Trump scapegoating rhetoric um, around the Wuhan virus, China virus, etc. And all of that is really a deflection and a, a way to offset um, the US's failings when it comes to um, dealing with this pandemic. Um, but yeah, certainly these um, acts of violence are related to the US attempts to manufacture consent for a war. Um, and when we go to war with another country, uh, the US de dehumanizes that people in order to justify um, that violence. That is, yeah, thank you so much.
Um, I also heard that that law was put in place because they didn't want the women to come so there wouldn't be a, a expansion of Chinese, uh, you know, the, the, there wouldn't be a procreation of Chinese people in America, that it was meant to just have them be workers and then die out, which is even, it's just disgusting. Um, so here we, I mean, really this is, this is barbarism. This is this is a, a, a level of inhumanity that you know has been arising in the U.S. Like how workers are treated, how blacks are treated, how you know how look at what we're doing at the border um, with refugees that we've created in our tampering in governments and and politics. So yet again, we're watching at at the inhumanity of a U.S. policy. And um, <laughs> while they're uh, trying to poke uh, holes, blame China for its inhumanity, and even as it was able to save its people <laughs> um, from COVID and bring 100% uh, of the country out of extreme poverty, um, even in the face of a lot of facts, uh, still too many people in the United States, way too many people were looking at a large number like 75% still think that China is an enemy. So um, your work, uh, Madison, is super important because we're here we are again swimming upstream against a ton of propaganda that really um, will affect the working people of the United States. It will affect the planet. Um, and like you said earlier, it is an existential threat to life on Earth. Thank you so much, Madison. Thanks for making us smarter about China and the U.S.'s aggression towards China, for reminding us that China is not our enemy, and that we all need to be um, out there educating. So you can find out more at codepink.org slash China. We have lots of webinars. We can make you smarter. Um, please don't be used by US propaganda. I mean, you know better than that. So we're here to help. Also, you can take action this week, uh, codepink.org slash Okinawa and tell Biden, Austin and Helen that we they need to stop um, building the space. And also, you don't want to miss Madison's conversation this weekend on Code Pink YouTube, and you can reach, you can find it anytime after this weekend up there. Dragon ladies, sex, nuclear weapons, and death. Um, so she'll take you deeper with um, some of her friends. We thank you so much for listening to Code Pink Radio, presented by WBAI in New York City and WPFW in Washington D.C. See you next week, and until then, cultivate peace. Bush and Bin Laden, you think they're foes? They're in business together. Daddy Bush knows the Carlisle Group since years before been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood. <laughs>